Welcome, welcome, scribes and scribblers. Remember to plan ahead, do your research, don't risk unprotected flex. That's right, you're back with the Nib Section, official podcast of Fountain Pens Oceania. Uh, we've, we've got a good episode for you today. I'll introduce you to some of our regular hosts. We've got uh, Diana Dai here. Welcome, Dai. Hello, Chuck. Good to see you again. And we've got Sharon here as well with us. Hello, Chuck. Good to see you. Um, as always, my name is uh, Chuck Montano. Um, let's, let's go around the horn, Dai. What are you writing with today? I have with me um, a rarely used S.T. DuPont. It's a limited edition, I believe, called the Phoenix Renaissance. I think it's from 2016 or so. And the remarkable thing about it, even though it's not one of my favorite S.T. DuPont models, but I love it or nevertheless because it's it's got little specks of what is um, marketed as meteor dust. I can't verify whether it actually is Can I take or isn't a look meteor at dust. But it, it, it's, it looks like little flecks of metallic uh, silver-coloured dust on a black background. And it's um, done in this very artful and sort of understated way. But it's got this massive clip, um, which is not in any way understated. It's, hu- it's a huge clip and it's a hefty pen as well. Well, I mean, this one's only just the standard limited edition, the black and silver version. I mean, this clip is meant to resemble like a talon or a beak. It's kind of pelican-esque. It reminds me of um, revivalist Egyptian sort of art. This, if you think this is oversized, you should have a look at uh, Jonathan's, John's uh, version of this. So he's got the extra, extra, extra limited edition one, which is red and gold. And actually has wings, as in the clip is like, has wings and has the biggest step down that I've seen. It's got some real solid weight to it, that one. Yes. So there's two, there's the black and silver and there's the red and orange. And I got the slightly more usable version. Mm. Mm. What about you, Sharon? What have you got on hand? Well, um, a couple of thoughts on Dye's pen because I lusted after this pen for a really long time. And if I may just gush a little bit more about it. so DuPonts are probably the only French pens I have in my collection. I did have a Cartier at one point, um, but DuPonts were the ones that stayed. And I love the fact that the DuPont nibs are so rigid and they've got a really nice scalloped edge around the sides. It's very, very pretty and not something that you see in any other type of nib design. Uh, what I'm really quite upset and why I didn't end up getting this pen um, is because they moved from their the older Olympio Orfeo range, so Olympio, um, Olympio Large, and the Fidelio range, which are, all of mine are in that particular range. Uh, they replaced those with the new prestige model called the Line D. And I'm really against the massive D on the cap. So that is the bit about this pen that I just cannot come to grips with. Whereas the older DuPont Olympios, which are similarly as beautiful, they write probably even better. They have no D on the cap. Dai's got one on hand for reference. Yeah. Right. Right. Uh, and I, I, that D is don't completely, like I don't like the D. Don't like the monogramming. <laughs> it's a bit in your face. 
It's very, very apparent. Even the later Olympios, actually, um, right before they introduced the line D, the later Olympios, they started putting the D on the cap. And I've returned about three DuPonts that I've ordered online because they came as an Olympio model with the D on the top. I'm anti the D on the yeah, DuPont. Well, what, what do you have? What are you, what are you pro today? Well, I have also a lacquered pen, but it is a Japanese lacquered. Um, this is the Nakaya Long Piccolo model, which is a Singapore exclusive model in what they call the Kikyo finish. So the blue blue finish. And it's just plain, it's plain, no clip, got nothing on it other than really, really lovely blue lacquer on top of ebonite. Um, it's currently inked with probably one of my favorite inks over the last two years, which is um, the Mont Blanc uh, Little Prince ink, which I've used, I think I mentioned in maybe the last episode as well. It's a very nice kind of brownie burgundy. Yeah. It featured in our end of year episode, I think. It's one of your favorite inks of 2018. Yeah, it featured in that. And it also featured when I had my Rouge et Noir. I had this ink in it as well. I just can't put it down. I really, really like it. Um, And this particular pen, uh, I was telling the guys before we started recording, the nib on it isn't the original nib it came with. Um, This pen actually came with a Yoshida-san stub nib, um, custom ground stub nib. But I swapped it out for a nib that I picked up on a whim in Japan. It must have been two, three years ago. And I managed to catch a pen clinic or something at the actual store. And I had this nib tweaked and modified, um, not, not really modified, but I had it tweaked to my liking so that it's a soft fine nib that writes more like a soft medium fine. Mm-hmm. Extra smooth, extra wet, not as flexy as a lot of the other soft finds, um, but still quite soft. Yeah, it's a it's an interesting one, and it writes better at low angles because I write at a low angle. Um, today I have a, a gift pen that uh, was given to me recently, and it is the uh, Mita Sancho Temple um, Limited Edition Decimo. It's a brown gold kind of a tortoise shell looking pen, and it's uh, they call it the Earth of a Watarase uh, model. There was a, a pair for it that was a water. Um, and it was, uh, if you can imagine like a blue tortoise shell, you know, instead of a golden brown. Uh, and it was nice, but the blue pen market is very saturated and you kind of got to do a lot to stand <laughs> out there. It is one of my dedicated writing pens now, probably uh, the dedicated writing pen. I've got a Diatramentis Document Black in it. And I've been doing a, a good amount of my sketching with it. Uh, ever since I've gotten it. Have you gotten over your learning curve with the clip? I did, I did. So Sharon had lent me a vanishing point in a matte black and two days, if that, I had completely (laughs) forgotten about the clip. It was actually, when I became aware of it, it was kind of nice because it was just like a little reminder to stop rotating rather than anything else. So you know, opinions and uh, position changed on vanishing points, but I do prefer Yay! the Yay! I, I prefer the lightness uh, of the decimo for for what I'm using it for, which is sketching. So lots lots of angle changes. But we've got uh, uh, some feedback and some news before we get to the main body of the show today. We uh, we've got a little bit of feedback from uh, Orelitas on um, Instagram. 
says, hey guys, love your podcast. Two questions for the ink experts. One, ideas on how to store ink bottles. More than 100. Uh, bookshelves, drawers, cabinets, shoe boxes. And number two, is there a white ink we can use in fountain pens? Now, on the topic of storage of ink bottles, I am not the expert at the table. So if either of you want to jump in. Yep. So uh, I actually answered this on Instagram in a very shortened form. Um, but I keep my ink in their original boxes because they're easier to stack. And I just stack them up in one of my built-in wardrobes, actually. So I have a spare built-in wardrobe in my second bedroom. And um, they're very deep um, shelves. And I just stack them up one after another. It's like playing – it's basically playing Tetris. Sideways Tetris. Yeah, so, yeah Tetris. In real life, um, I keep all of the brands together. So I keep all my sailors together, all of my pilots together, because the bottles are all about around about the same – shape and size and then those weird ones that don't quite fit um so the round bottles so your robert osters your i'm trying to think what else lamy old oh, sailors no, no the i keep all the lamy and old sailors in their uh, in their bottles in their boxes but you've got a couple of odds and sods that just don't fit um mostly robert osters all of those go into a shoe box and they are used to line the bottom of the bookshelf. I have a one Diamine anniversary uh, ink bottle. The uh, triangle? Yeah, the, the wedge. Pi- the, pizza, the pizza slice. And uh, I feel like I need a second just to you create... Need seven more. Well, so well even just one more to create a viable shape to, to fit into everything <laughs> with. Because if I, if I put two together and alternate it, then it's like a rectangle. <laughs> Yeah, but I, it was one of those ones where I liked the bottle and I didn't really think through what I was going to do with just the one. So I have my in collection numbers like 300 and something bottles and I do something similar to Sharon. But because I don't have enough cabinet space for everything, I separate my collection into two groups. There is the inks, which are backups and which I don't use so much, but they're just for having most of those are my Kobe inks mm-hmm. <laughs> because I'm dedicated to be a completionist now. So I need to have all of the Kobe inks and those bottles that I don't use so much and which are fairly easy to stack because they're uniform. I put them in like 40 liter or 50 liter plastic storage tubs and they're on the floor of my office in very ugly plain sight, unfortunately. Um, But I need to have them close just in case I do want to use the rare bottle. And the ones that I do use more often and which are odd sized as well, I have in a cabinet which has just a solid door so it's not exposed to any light and they're stacked by ink uh, brand. So there's about 100 maybe bottles which I do frequently use and I have the same trouble with the Dine Mine the wedge-shaped ink yeah. bottles as well as I think Ladisan Pastelier also uses those yeah, yeah. shaped bottles the, the and they shape. are a pain and I got rid of a lot of them last year during the Sydney Pen Show um, I gave them away to the ink testing station oh that's an idea of what I can do this year. <laughs> yeah. but that actually bottle shape is a major factor when I'm thinking of how to whittle down my inks 
Well, um, I'm quite fortunate, as you know, last year I really uh, trimmed down the ink collection from, you know, probably 400 plus. I'm now down to about 300, yeah. maybe 320, maybe. Um, so that's under control. Yeah. <laughs> Unlike Di, where she said she has about 100 inks that she uses on a regular basis, the more accessible ones, I have six bottles that I keep yeah. easily accessible. And they're actually, they're in a small cabinet right on top of my desk. It's basically three different types of blues, one purple, and I think two greens. Um, on, on that note, I think you had something to say about uh, white ink. I believe, which was the second question we had from Oralitas. The only white ink that I know of that can be used in a fountain pen is uh, Diatramentus Document White. Putting it out there. Anything else? I don't think it's as opaque as white gouache or white gel ink, which is why a lot of artists prefer to use gouache or gel ink pens instead. But if you really need a white fountain pen, I'm... I think that's the only one that's um, relatively opaque and still safe for fountain pens. But of course, if you know of an alternative, um, any listeners out there, just send us an email or message us. Yep. Because I can't think of any other uses for white fountain pen ink except for lettering on like colored cards and I guess drawing over artworks. Specifically dark coloring cards. Yeah. So the only use that I can think of is pro- is writing on different uh, cardboard stock. Yeah. yeah. So darker backgrounds. Uh, but even so, document white doesn't write that well on dark backgrounds. It's quite milky. No, exactly. Yeah. It's quite. It, it literally looks like milk. It, and when you write with it, it looks like you're writing with milk. So it's semi, tr- semi-transparent. It's not fully opaque. Mm. To get a really opaque effect, you'd, you're better off to use gouache or calligraphy ink and use a dip-nib. Mm-hmm. So we, uh, we're going to do a giveaway, uh, which I think we've been talking about for a, a little bit. Um, I, I know I was ready to mention it before Sydney Penn Show last year. I was thinking about it, but... Um, we might have had discussions about it off-air. Yeah, yeah. I don't think we've discussed it no, on-air. On air. We've on been air. thinking about it for a while. Yeah, yeah. But Sharon already ran a giveaway um, over Christmas, but we didn't record an episode in time for us to announce it. Well, I... Th- I think that one was spur of the moment because (laughs) of all of the favourites and all the petite love that the pilot petites were getting. I did manage to pull together giveaways, two giveaways actually, one on our Facebook, one on our Instagram for some of our Christmas recommendations actually. Well, this this time we're going to have uh, a couple of... Chuck, in the spirit of wanting to slim down our collections and to share the love basically rather than selling our pens we're giving away some of our older pens yeah uh, which are no longer well we can't say they're no longer sparking joy but we are saying that they will probably spark joy better in other people let's put it that way so this is the part where we thank them for their service and move them to a better place yes so we have two prizes up for grabs the runner-up is a Opus 88 Coloro in the, I think it's a yellow and green ebonite finish. And it will be coming to you with a bottle of ink from... Tag. Is Kyo, it Kyo Iro? Yeah, it's Kyo Iro. It's called Stone Road of Gion. And um, how would you describe this? It's like a greyish it's, khaki It's colour. a... It's like pebbles. Yeah, like a cold like grey. Yeah, cold grey. It's like um, a pebbles that you find 
in Gion, actually. Um, I, I actually quite like this colour. Yeah, I quite like this colour as well. It's really unique. It's um, it's not super saturated. It's a shading ink. It's um, brownish grey, greyish brown. Very, very unique. I haven't found anything else which is in the same And we both have pack ups of this colour, don't we? Oh, yes, we do. Now, the, the colour has a medium uh, steel nib on it. Now, they are eyedroppers. They're Japanese eyedroppers. Yes, uh, but uh, we will be sending you an eyedropper along with it. And what's the the big prize? Uh, the big prize is uh, paired with a uh, bottle of Kin Mokusai. It's yeah, yeah. it's the it's your your ink I in know, the sailor I've range. I've a swab of this from you, the Kin Mokusai. Um, anyway, the sailor Kin Mokusai, and uh, I'm going to offer up a Lamy 2000 uh, with a BB. Uh, nib, a double broad that uh, guest host and um, uh, resident nib worker for me, anyway, local nib worker, uh, Tav has turned into a stub, a very forgiving stub. And it is a really a great pen. Um, and I've, I've sung the praises of the Lamy 2000 a bunch, but I wanted to give an opportunity for the um, our listeners to uh, give us give us some entertaining stuff. And I kind of want to run this as a drawing competition mm-hmm. the theme is animals uh, and the picture of an animal that i it has to be drawn with uh, a fountain pen picture of an animal that uh, i enjoy the most the most detailed and realistic won't necessarily win so what you're asking is to be included on the draw send us a picture of an animal that you've drawn yourself with a fountain pen preferably take a photo of the artwork with the fountain pen that you used to draw it with and, and where should this uh, image be posted we'll run this one on our instagram and uh, make sure you tag uh, the nib section and is there a gifts is there a giveaway specific tag Sharon just drew a picture of a dog and she's absolutely not going to win. Oh, ouch. I put in a lot of effort into this one, guys. Uh, <laughs> it's a dog with no ears. No, no, no. This is the ear right here. What? Okay, maybe that should have been rounded. <laughs> it looks like a neck. <laughs> guys, I'm not the resident artist around here. Let's go with a, let's a hashtag a TNS a pet sketch. Okay, so here are the official rules. You need to have an Instagram account to be included in this draw. You should post on your Instagram account a picture of a drawing that you've done of an animal with a fountain pen. And you need to first friend the nib section on Instagram. You need to tag us in your drawing and you need to use the hashtag TNS pet sketch. Pet sketch. Yep. Uh, the rules will be written in the episode notes for this episode, but uh, we'll also put up an announcement on Instagram. Absolutely. And uh, that, that one's open for whoever. And when does it close? Let's give it two weeks from from episode release date. So we're, we're March 1st. Let's give it till the 15th. Okay. So th- this episode goes live on March 1st. You'll have two weeks to enter and we will pick a winner on the 14th. No, on the 15th of March. Um, Australian time, so that will probably be the 14th of March for you in the US. Yeah, that's our cutoff. Our cutoff will be midnight on the 15th. And, yeah, so watch the Instagram to find out who we've picked. Yeah. There is a little more news apart from our um, giveaway. It is uh, also going to be Aurora's uh, 100th year anniversary this year. 
I had to include this in the show notes when I saw it yesterday, yeah. just because of our collective um, obsession about auroras. So they announced this on the 16th of Feb. Um, and it, they said, uh, to celebrate Aurora's 100 years of history, we have decided to revisit some of our classics. There will be one every month and in a super limited edition. In a few days, you'll find out which is the first pen we have chosen. Now, Di, do you have any particular classic models that you hope that uh, they'll be revisiting? Yes, I do. I'm so glad you asked. So, um, I have a couple of vintage Aurora's and... Two of the models which I really enjoy and which are no longer being made and which I'd like to see them bring back for a limited run. Uh, one of them is the original vintage Aurora 88, which I think is very emblematic of the Aurora brand, even though they, I think they were accused of making it in Parker 51 knockoff back in the day. Um, however, I think it has a really lovely, what's the type of the nib that sort of Parker 51? Hooded? It's not quite a hooded nib. It's inlaid. Yeah, it's like an inlaid nib. Um, very small part of the nib is actually visible and sticking out from the front of the pen. But it looks very much like a Parker 51. But I think it has a bit of bounce to the nib, which is not usually found in a Parker 51 nib. And... It also that distinctive feedback quality, which you still find in Aurora 88s. Um, it's it's completely different in appearance to the modern Aurora 88s. Um, it's also a cigar shape um, and it has a ebonite body, I believe, and piston filler, uh, little ink windows. Very few of them have survived to this day in a workable condition. So I have a couple of the vintage ones, but all the pistons are degrading. Mm -hmm. um, the nibs are still fine, but just the bodies are, they're old and it's quite difficult to repair. So I'd like to see them bring something like that back. Um, the other model I really love is the Hastile, which I know <gasps> no, Tab likes as well. <laughs> okay, why don't you, no, I, why I don't you talk about the Hastile then? <laughs> Actually, um, so more specifically, I, I was going to say that I would like to see the Aurora Hastile in the older lacquers that they did. Yes. Was that what you were going to say? Yes. Oh. So um, I think in the 70s, Aurora did the Hastile, which is a design, it's a slimmer pen design, actually. And um, I was thinking about it when, Chuck, you were mentioning that you preferred the size and uh, the shape of the Decimo versus the yes. Vanishing Point. I prefer a slimmer pen myself. Um, and the Hastile is quite a slim pen. And so a lot of people probably won't like it as much nowadays, given the propensity for pen manufacturers to go way oversized. So if you are familiar with the sort of shape and body of a Mont Blanc no Noblesse. Yep. Or so, a Lamy logo. Yeah, something like that. That's very similar to the Hastile. Yeah. Um, so the Hastile is actually in the Museum of Modern Arts, along with the Lamy 2000 that mm. Chuck's giving away. But in the 70s, they did um, the Hastil in a beautiful lacquered finish. I've seen blue lacquers, red lacquers. Um, I can't remember if they did any type of patterns on the lacquers, but the plain lacquers are just gorgeous as well. And so that's what I would like to see come back rather than the stainless steel Hastil that they've got right now. Yeah. It's got a very unique nib. I've managed to recently source a, uh, Optima Sole uh, and were I not 
uh, talking from that position of strength, then uh, all of my answers would be or orange, oralide-based. Uh, um, I did think about the Mara Ionio that uh, came out, which is an interesting Aurora shape in that the bottom is flat, but the top is rounded. Mm. And those, those are interesting, but... Um, I'm not a huge fan of uh, metallic sections. I think the one that I do like that I haven't seen uh, a sort of a version of since is for their 75th anniversary, they put out a red uh, Optima uh, that had a black ebonite section compared to a resin section, which they normally I think have. we can definitely expect some form of Optima mm. to be released for this. Yeah, yeah, within the series. And it uh, has a... Nice little 75 um, engraved on the clip, uh, like the Mare um, Optima and the Sole Optima. But yeah, those are, I, I imagine, I'm hoping that a lot of it flies by me, but uh, I, I'm, I'm not super, not super confident about that. <laughs> We've also seen um, in recent, probably in the last week or so, a lot more actual swabs of the pilot 100th year inks which i know pilot's 100 year anniversary was last year but the inks are now just becoming um more um more easily accessible yeah. and i've seen so many swabs of it i really like a lot of them especially the gold yeah yeah I mean, <laughs> when does that, your set arrive that was gonna happen i don't know that yet i put in a pre-order um at uh, classic fountain pens and they said orders will be fulfilled um depending on you know, the time of who, who ordered it. And so I hope I got in. Uh, a lot of them look, the Bishop Montaigne looks a little duskier than I thought it would be. Mm. And the, uh, the same for the um, Jurogin, which is the purple, I believe. Um, that one also looks, they, they all look much more everyday usable than I th was expecting, which was kind of a spread of light colors. They looked probably not as vibrant yeah. um, as what I was expecting initially. I don't think it's a bad thing because um, the pilot Iroshizuku passed uh, limited edition, so they've done a Tokyo. Mm, they were um, a bit dusty. They were quite dusty and quite muted uh, colours. And this um, is closer to that than like their famous Yamabudos or Kompekis. Um the Bishamonten specifically looks closer to Yamabudo than um, sort of a, the brightish red I was expecting. Momiji? Yeah, yeah. We're closer to that. But I, I am excited about uh, the swabs that we have seen coming out about those. Now, th this takes us to our main topic for the episode, um, and that is emotional attachment to pens and uh, the fuzzy feelings that we get. So we're going to be exploring the relationship between us and inanimate objects and what our fountain pens mean to us. I'm going to pass this little bit over to Diana um, that she's included in. So if you'd like to take it. So this topic was suggested to us by a friend of the pod and sometimes co-host Melissa Graff. And this naturally flows on from our discussion about um, the KonMari method and why we choose to keep certain things and get rid of others. Uh, we each use and collect fountain pens for personal reasons. Pens can represent significant moments in our lives from rites of passage. Uh, we get pens for certain promotions or we receive them for anniversaries. Pens can help us feel connected with loved ones who are no longer with us or impart a sense of belonging with a group. 
And that last thing, or the last two things, how pens make us feel connected to certain people and how they make us feel connected to certain groups of people, I thought is interesting for us to talk about, given that we are all part of a larger community who are obsessed about pens. And I think we can all we can all relate to that feeling quite a bit. So I put out a list of questions to our members on FPO and I also gave Alistair in Melbourne a list of questions. We'll be hearing from members of FPO as well as members of the Melbourne Pen Posse who meet every month. And we'll be looking at these questions ourselves as well. One of the questions I gave to um, the members were, what do you think your fountain pens mean to you? And has this changed over time? We're going to hear from first Leanne from Melbourne. Hi, I'm Leanne. And my question is, what do your fountain pens mean to you? Has this changed over time? Um, Before, it was just stationary. I bought my very first Lamy Coral from Brewer Direct um, because the rollerballs were out of stock and I like the color. So just like any stationary, just like a pencil or a ruler, now it's therapeutic. Um, People buy expensive candles. I buy pens. Not only are they functional, they don't burn off in the next four hours. And I have something tangible to, to feel when I'm writing. And it's very... It's a very indescribable feeling. Thank you, Leanne. Leanne is perfectly right in saying that sometimes we buy pens in low points of our lives to make ourselves feel better about things. Amen. (laughs) So it's a type of retail therapy from which you also, at the end of it, get something that you really enjoy using and you can keep using for a long period of time. Um, Our next bit of feedback was from Kaz. Kaz says, this was a reply on our on Fountain Pens Oceania, Kaz said, Fountain Pens are basically my inner snob liking fancy things. That being said, I do love the fact that you don't throw them out because they never run out of ink and the huge variety of inks out there also allows for more choice. Someone else who replied on FPO was Adam and Adam said, I dipped my toe in the water around 2009 with a couple of preppies and a pilot penmanship. I tend to write small and I wanted something finer and more comfortable than a high-tech C. It stuck around for a couple of months, but I walked away from that project, pens, and went back to gel pens and not writing much. I tried again in 2014 with the Metropolitan and that lasted a few months before I put it down. Then I started down the rabbit hole in earnest a little over two years ago. The difference is finding and connecting with the positivity, enthusiasm, excitement, sense of community and sense of exploration online and in person. That's the bit that you don't see when you unbox a $5 or a $500 pen and see it just as a manufactured object like a spoon or a keyboard. Before, Alami 2000 on display at MoMA wouldn't have gotten any notice. Now it reminds me of when I bought my Alami 2000. All I've written with that pen and all other pens, inks and papers and the way they feel and the people I've met the people I've heard on some podcast or group or whatnot. It also reminds me of how people are still trying to find the ideal pen, whether it's a manufacturer, a small maker, or a collector hunting for a grail pen. Um, I I really like that answer. There's, there's, a, yeah. lot, there's a lot in there. There's um, a, a whole journey yeah. kind of from, it, um, from inception to, to present. I really liked this answer, actually, uh, because it reminded me quite a lot of how I came back to fountain pens because I I was quite heavily collecting fountain pens from about 2004 all the way up until about 2010, 2010. 
and was quite heavily involved in the fountain pen network uh, forum um, back in the day. And I really enjoyed all of that. But then uh, I got a full-time job, real life got in the way. And for some reason, I lost contact with a couple of the people that um, I'd been speaking to for a really long time. And slowly, one by one, all my pens got boxed up. And for the longest time, my first couple of years um, in full-time work, I used art liners, like the fine liner pens that we got free at work or um, ballpoint pens because as everyone knows I like a good good ballpoint pen and I really hadn't touched uh, fountain pens again till about 2015 I think it would have been end of 2014 beginning of 2015 when I discovered that there were Facebook groups um, when I discovered Di when I discovered Brian um, Mark and a whole bunch of other people who were Really, I went to my first um, Sydney fountain pen meet completely on a whim and I didn't even join the Facebook group originally. A friend of mine who um, was an artist, shout out to Jenny if you're listening, probably not, but uh, she she was an artist and she bought her first Pilot Preppy and she was so enamoured with it and um, – uh, Prera, sorry, not Preppy, Prera. And she called me up and she said, oh, Sharon, tell me more about these fountain pens because I know you used to have a collection. Do you still have a collection? She found some Facebook group, added me onto that Facebook group. And the next thing I knew, two days later, I was standing in the middle of town hall um, not knowing anyone, meeting a group of random people um, for a fountain pen meet. Wait, around town hall? So that would that would have been one that Mark hosted. It was the art, ha- the failed art house uh, that was the meet. One that Mark hosted. So Mark hosted um, Mark Hobson, one of the now organisers of the Sydney Pen Show, <laughs> so, horrifically used to organise the Sydney um, pen meets, and the first one I went to, he organised at the art house hotel, which which is conveniently closed on Sundays. The um, meet was scheduled for 10.30 a.m. on a Sunday. He was running late. Everyone, I was waiting outside the art house. It, it was it was an experience. This has not translated into the Sydney Pen Show. Oh, no, no, <laughs> no, no. This has clearly been a learning experience. <laughs> Mark has improved in leaps and bounds since 2015, 2015, I think this was. Yeah. Especially since Sophia got on board. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Sophia wasn't a thing back then. So we, we give her all the kudos where kudos is due. Um, yeah, so this whole story, uh, Adam, thank you so much for leaving that comment because it just reminded me so much of my own experience and how I got back into fountain pens and how I met all of these crazy kooks that I'm sitting around the table with. Mm-hmm. My first meet was uh, done with not a small amount of trepidation. Um, oh yeah. Uh, I didn't I didn't show up. I I showed up kind of expecting to spend a very short amount of time. Um but and I think I I was very, you know, duck in duck out for the for a lot of mates and And you barely used fountain pens at the beginning. I barely did. I think I had stopped in because I was looking uh, I, I think for for a present and now I'm the person that um <laughs> My is the friends. instant expert on fountain yeah, pens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> there are, for anybody for anybody listening, there are a number, it's especially if you've you've only kind of recently got on board, um, a number of your boyfriends have used me as sources uh, for for your presence in the past year. 
I'm not going to name names, but it's happened. <laughs> okay. Well, I, re- I really loved Adam's reply because similar to Sharon, um, I used fountain pens before I got involved with the group. And what they meant to me back then is completely different to what they mean for me now. So before I had, you know, maybe a few pens that I used exclusively. I didn't have a large collection. I used them as a tool. They were utilitarian for me. I didn't collect. I, it wasn't, you know, very important to me how they looked. I mean, they had to be uh, not pretty. They had to be pretty, but they didn't have to be, you know, knockouts for me to want to buy them and once I had a pen I thought you know this isn't okay this is okay I don't need more pens so it's a tinder like not a super like <laughs> yes exactly that's what fountain pens were like for me before checking in but and confirm once you yeah. got involved once I got involved with the online group it becomes completely different every pen I acquire um, every pen I look at it's it's imparted with my emotions um, for being involved in this community. And, you know, I I remember um, certain pens I got because, you know, someone actually bothered to bring them back from overseas for me um, specifically. Um, I remember other ones because I got them at special times or on recommendation from someone in the group. Yeah, there's a lot of releases as well that will come out and I'll be like, oh, I don't care for that, but I know who will like that. And um, I'll think immediately of people in the community. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's, um, it's much more a part of my daily life now. Um, we have another response from Nicholas. Um, what perhaps drove my initial attraction to fountain pens was a reaction to the speed with which everything is happening in the modern world. Fountain pens are for writing what yoga is for life, an opportunity to slow down and smell the roses. When you hold a fountain pen in your hand, somehow you become a part of that history and the beginning of a new adventure. I think this is something that um, is common with a lot of tools for creation. I I get, uh, probably not to the same degree, but I get a similar feeling when I've uh, had a new brush or, you know, a new media with which to create. Uh, And... A fountain pen is kind of a a very specific focal point, um, both uh, a joining of art as well as literature, where those the importance of those two things kind of feels like they come together. It's like looking at like a blank page in a fresh new notebook. You know, it's full of possibilities. Yeah, yeah. I look at blank pages in fresh new notebooks. Horror with trepidation. I was like, like, there's definitely some apprehension. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Each to their own. (laughs) The second question uh, that I posed to the group is, is there a pen that is particularly meaningful to you and why? Uh, Paul on FPO, his reply was, the most meaningful pen was one that I lost and one which was a gift from my parents when I started university. It was a Waterman ballpoint before I start going crazy for fountain pens. Although probing it a bit further, my attachment to pens probably started a lot earlier than I thought. I think this is uh, true for a lot of people because pens are one of those gifts that people get as as retirement presents, as graduation presents, as birthdays. So even though that pen that you receive may not be, you know, the most glamorous or um, the pen in your collection that writes the best, it's still important to you and you probably don't want to lose it or... Uh, let go of that yeah there is i feel like people have some confusion about being attached to a pen but they don't have the same confusion about being attached to like a musical instrument 
or a car yeah when it what you're looking at is the the same thing you're you're you have um an attachment partially because of the possibility uh you know because of what experiences are attached to that thing and so replacing uh replacing a car is going to give you some kind of uh, emotional feedback the same way that uh, trying to replace a fountain pen will or trying to replace a guitar because they the physical object that you now uh, that you now possess is not the one that had the history imparted to it this is completely going off on a tangent but um, this reminds me of a I think it was a podcast that I was listening to that was talking about art and why we value originals more than forgeries forgeries in in quotes and it's because we we each believe that objects even though we know that one is almost exactly the same as the other we think that objects that have been through a period of our lives with us they are imbued with certain essence um and like we 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 think you know that we know when a pen is ours or you know when something like a car is ours or a piece of clothing is ours, even though there may be nothing at all to distinguish it from something that's brand new. Yeah. And in, it's complete, in, it's probably completely irrational. And in, yet, in fact, a brand new one may that. be in a, a better condition than the one that it could you be possessed. worth more. Yeah. But even if they were exactly the same, you still want the one that was yours, you know? Yeah. Not someone else's. There's a great bit in an old Simpsons episode where Homer tries to pawn off um, Lisa's saxophone. Uh, and they're appraising it. Uh, and he says, uh, not much material value, but sentimental value is through the roof. Yes. And that's that's kind of how I think about it in that um, somewhere someone has come across uh, the omas that I've lost on the bus or the train somewhere. And it's going to be uh, near meaningless to them. They're going to see that it's a, a clear pen of, of some kind. And it's not going to provoke that response. But yes. yeah, if it found its way into someone in the community there would be like if i found uh if i found this uh st dupont on the train knowing what it is i would immediately return it oh i'd be reaching out i'd be reaching out to uh to, to if if i didn't know you but i knew about fountain pens the weight that this must hold in in a in a person's uh life uh meant that it would need to be returned this is why I, when I do sell my pens on Woods, I don't like to just put it up in an anonymous auction because you don't know where that pen's going to end up. And because I value that pen more than, you know, what it's just worth numerically, I wanted to go to someone who I know will value it. Um, and I'd rather it to go to someone who is a member of the community and not someone who maybe is a dealer and who will sell it on again. Um and that's purely sentimental, and I know that, and I probably lose money when I sell my pens that way. But you know, that's still meaningful to me. Yeah. Mm. So here's two responses. Well, actually, three responses from the Melbourne gang. So my name is Hohan, and I'll be talking about a pen that is particularly meaningful to me. Uh, and to me, that pen would be the uh, Pelican 400 that I got on eBay. And that's kind of, that was my second pen that I've ever gotten. But it was the one that really got me into kind of tinkering and tweaking with my pens. I've ground that nib. I've kind of modified it in all kinds of ways. It can now do flex writing. And that's kind of also brought me into the calligraphy world of things. So that is kind of like one of the pens that really 
got me rooted in the fountain pen hobby. And that's kind of the one that's the most meaningful to me personally. Hi, I'm Kevin Yank, and I'm here to talk about a pen that is particularly meaningful for me. I have a Pilot Mew, uh, so one of these integrated nib pens. It's, it's teeny tiny when it's capped, and then you pull a cap off and you put it on the back and it becomes a full-size pen. And it's an integrated nib, so the nib is part of the whole metal body of the pen. And why it's especially special to me is it was manufactured the exact same month I was born, in 1978. When I found out this pen existed, I was really taken by the design of it. And when I started looking into it, these Pilot pens are all stamped with the date that they were made. And I noticed that the manufacturing window of this pen coincided with my own birthday. And so I was on a mission to find one that was stamped with 0478 which is my birth month. And I finally found one. It was going for $100 more than you would normally pay for this pen, but I thought that one, it will feel like part of me. And I now own that pen and it, it feels really special to use uh, because uh, it feels like it, it knows just as much as I do and just as little as well. Hi, my name is Leonie. And the question is, is there a pen that is particularly meaningful and why? So I have a pen actually with me um, that is a Namiki Maki'i pen um, and it's got dragon, not dragonflies, they're actually fireflies on it. Um, the reason it's particularly meaningful to me is that I got it on my trip to Japan. Um, so I bought it in Tokyo and it's meaningful in particular because uh, my nana had passed away recently um, when I went and in my understanding um, in Japan fireflies carry the souls of the dead. Um, and so I saw this pen and I ended up buying it in memory of my Nana. Um, so it's a beautiful piece of art anyway. It's hand painted and it has um, abalone shell in it as well to represent the fireflies and their flight. Um, but it also has a personal meaning to me as well. Okay. Thank you from uh, Hauhan, Kevin, and Leone for uh, those clips. Um, there, there's an interesting thing that people uh, have mentioned uh, about what a pen represents as made by the manufacturer um, and sort of event emotional attachment. But there's a lot of times that we'll get a thing that we think represents uh, something that we'd, we'd like it to. Um, so you put something of yourself into it. Yeah. yeah, or even just something in the something in the icon, or something in the the design or the shape of it that uh, you identify with. Um, I think it was sort of on a tangent, but um, what Kevin was saying about finding the Mew um, in his birth year, I am a I won't say collector, but I'm an accumulator of Hermes scarves and in the Hermes scarf world, there's this concept of having a birth year scarf, which is very similar. I so didn't know that. Oh, you didn't? No. They, there Damn are actual it. auction websites <laughs> where you can buy birth year scarves. They have scarves listed by years um, and you find a design that you particularly like in the year that you were born and Wait, that we is have a birth. Year. We share a birth year. Yes, there are quite a few designs from Okay, you're going to have scarves. to show me the link. Okay. <laughs> we'll right. do. Okay. Um, but... But yeah, there's this whole concept of a birth year scarf and I'm still looking for mine. I think I already know what design I want, but um, I haven't been able to find an appropriate birth year scarf for me. And isn't that just completely arbitrary? It's completely <laughs> arbitrary, right? Because it's not like it was something that was actually designed in 19... 19- 
blank blank let's just leave my birth year no, blank. It just it was just put to shell yeah, it was just it was just sold in that particular year or it was part of one particular season. Or like if you think about it nowadays, um, I have known people who have bought um, Lamy safaris in the special edition colour for when they gave birth to their kids. Yeah, I, I have this not with pens, although I did admit when I heard um, Kevin say that, I started looking up what models of pen sort of came out in 89 but i already have that attachment to a movie um which is indiana jones and the last crusade which came out <laughs> for me it's blade runner for you it's yes. blade runner. yeah yeah so now we've given away what you <laughs> <laughs> like tears in the rain <laughs> so let's move on to this next question which is uh sort of tied in with this do you feel more connected to a pen when you have had it for a long time or when you know its history this response is from paul I do feel more connected to an old pen, an ever-sharp skyline, which has been at the top of the rotation for a very long time. A bit of a dig turns out that the pen was in the 1940s, and I do have a strong attachment to items of age. Um, there's a lot of vintage collectors in the, in the community, and not just in the pen community. I think um, this is from a particular perspective. So my mother, who is, um, well, we're Chinese, but she has very particular ideas about items that have been owned by other people. And she doesn't like me buying things that are used. She thinks, you know, that we don't use the word karma, but something like karma is attached to objects of other people. Juju. Yes. And especially if we don't know who owned it, you know, it could belong to someone who died in unfortunate circumstances or, um, you know, had unhappy lives and uh, my mother believes that that's a risk that you take. I don't think all of us believe that, but at the same time, I think the history of objects is still meaningful to us. So if mm. we know, for example, someone famous owned a particular pen and we bought it from them, that's something that we can talk about. It, mm. it makes it more um, valuable to us, I guess. Yeah, yeah, I think the positivity of an object's history uh, is talked about a lot more frequently than the potential negativity of an object's history. Well, then you have, you know, people who are who like that negativity. Yeah, yeah <laughs> who yeah. go hunting for objects Correct. that are part of um, tragedies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, I completely get where your mother's coming from, um, and I'm guilty of my buying majority of my pens new or from people that I know very well. I rarely, I rarely buy off eBay, for instance, because I'm afraid of the bad juju that may come with a particular pen. And just like there's one, like I have one blanket rule of when it comes to buying pens, which is I will never buy from an estate auction, and that's. But probably just a very silly personal belief. But um, as Di mentioned, we become very sentimentally attached to our, um, to our fountain pens. And I like to know the life of mine, where it's been, what it's done, or at least where its last trip was. Yeah, yeah. I think it's Julian who says something similar where he, he likes to know um, he, he likes to buy his pens new and to keep them for a very long time. It, it's not about getting something that's mint. It's about knowing that he was the first person to hold it and the, first, and the only person to use it over the life of a pen. That's important to him. Yeah, and I, I get that. I'm, yeah. I'm guilty of buying. I'm, I'm guilty of buying and not using. Um, and when I choose to use a pen, it's because I choose to make a certain type of history with that particular pen or I use it very intentionally. I don't randomly ink up pens. Yeah, I've, I bought a guitar once from a guy and a few months later, 
I wanted to check in and see how he was going and I found his Facebook page and it was full of very, very horrific political stuff. Uh, and that's oh, uh, no. that now gets, it kind of rubs off. That guitar it. didn't stay. Oh, uh, not for that oh, reason. Not that, for though. that reason, but it but it also didn't stay, and it was. But you can imagine subconsciously, every time you look at that guitar, you'd be thinking, "Oh, what a yeah." I mean, we do, we, do, we do impart, and it was it was a thing that I I loved, and that didn't get in the way. But also, when I got rid of it, I was like, "Oh, that's something that I never have to think about again." Yeah. 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 Um, that I that I gave that person money, <laughs> yeah. but I, so I think the other part to this question, which was, do you feel more connected to a pen when you've had it for a long time? I don't know what you guys think, but my answer to that is not necessarily. Yeah, no, not necessarily. Not necessarily. No. There are some pens which I've had for a much shorter period of time that I'm so much more attached to than ones which I've had for a very long period of time, and I couldn't get. I couldn't wait to get rid of, or I still can't wait to get rid of. I just can't get rid of yeah. them. I, I think some people value age in itself more heavily than, than some of us do. And some, uh, some of us maybe necessarily want a story behind that age or if there to be events related to that mm. age. I, for me, I, th- I don't think it's exclusively the thing that I value how long I've had it but I definitely think it plays a factor and I can give concrete examples for this so at the very beginning of when I seriously started collecting pens I bought a lot of um, what I'd call you know like mid-century vintage lever fillers from the mid-20th century uh, like Conway Stewart's and so forth and I don't love those pens and they're certainly um, you know they're they stand out in my collection because I never bought anything similar to that again. But because they're from that period of my collecting experience, I've held on to them. And also because I don't think anyone else would really appreciate them very much. But now, um, closer to current day, if I bought something that I didn't like and I wasn't going to use, I would just I would think nothing of passing that on, giving it away or reselling it or something like that. So I think it's, it's, um, it's harder for me to let go of those older pens. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Side note, uh, 89, also the year of Dead Poets Society. Oh, good uh, movie. And The Brave Little Toaster. What? <laughs> you, know, you never saw it? Oh, that, that, no. that might be a me-specific thing. <laughs> um, so uh, here, here's another thing that uh, anthropologists will definitely say is a part of our collection of items. Uh, what do we think our pens say about us? Um, we've got a clip here from Hannah. Hi everyone, my name's Hannah and I'm going to answer the question, what do you think your pens say about you? Well, I actually have um, quite a cheap taste in fountain pens, if that makes sense. Um, You know, I I prefer Kaweco Perkios and uh, Lamy Safaris much more than the more expensive pens because I I like cheap and colourful. I like lots of different coloured of inks. That's like my main passion is like inks rather than pens, so... Jinhao shark pens are another favorite, I know. Classic, right? Um, But yeah, so my pens say about me that I am cheap and cheerful. What do my pens say about me? I like Hannah's response, how she said she was cheap and cheerful. Does mine just say, uh, look but don't don't touch? (laughs) Is that what it says? Or like, or, or... You think about those celluloid collectors, right? Handle with care or else it explodes. Right, Costa? Uh, mine say horrible things about me when I'm out of the room. Okay, they've, they've gotten back to me <laughs> through other people. I, th- I think that this is, this is a lot of uh, pretty much any social animal. Um, uh, uh, there's a part of presenting yourself to the uh, society that you're in. 
And um, I've found every pan I have has some kind of limitedness to it, whether that means someone has worked on it personally or that means that they're not easy to get at, at any given time. And I find that even if I get something and it doesn't have that, I feel the need to add some uh, level of personalization to that, which is uh, about as much uh, therapy as I want to put on air. <laughs> Self-analysis? Yeah, yeah. So I put some thought into this. I'm pretty sure that some of this is at least, you know, um, conscious self-selection. But I definitely think that my pens say that I don't like putting in too much work into things. <laughs> So I, I don't like pens that are a lot of effort to clean, to remodel, you know, repair and things like that. You don't I like, like a tinkerer's pen? No, I'm not. Yeah. Um, I like it to just work. Yeah, yeah. So no noodlers Ahab for you. Exactly. Um, I, I like things that are pretty. Um, I like things that are functional and I like things from different periods of history, but leading towards the current. So I, I, I don't particularly like things that are too old. And you're not a fan of Bauhaus? Not really, no. <laughs> we we uh, kind of subconsciously lean towards the values uh, that that we uh, have adopted into our lives, and so part of part of those choices. Um, there's a lot of people, for example, uh, we've we've expressed our disdain about stealth uh, matte trim pens. Um, for a lot of these, uh, I think I think not. It's not a dig against the pens. It's a dig against a certain sort of mindset, which thinks that they don't they can't have something that is pretty and colorful yeah, yeah. that they have to limit themselves to a black and white sure palette thing. but that's also to be really manly probably, about it mm, mm. That, that's also um what i'm getting at is that that's not necessarily a conscious decision to them to them it's not the decision that i have to pick this because all of the other things I don't like not, what they not, represent. Not to not to be like um, to bring toxic masculinity into everything. Yeah, but, uh, yeah. This reminded me of um, a thread on on Twitter where someone was saying, you know, like when when you take a boy um, or his father into an ice cream stand and they don't want to get, you know, the shiny, um, the really nice flavors. Why do you have to settle for like just plain vanilla and I vanilla and chocolate? Just go for the fruity ones if you like the fruity ones. Yeah, I get a I get a raspberry and cream like every. Exactly, every you time are in touch in, with your feminine side. To complete aside, Gelatissimo, which is very close to here, yep. have a new unicorn flavored. It's like blue with it's like blue rainbow, the rainbow paddle pops, but it's better because it's gelato. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's I really want to try that. <laughs> I, I was, oh, it's blue. I, I had an it's apple great. pie. Oh, what well, flavour is blue? A blue. Bubble it, gum. <laughs> it's not bubble gum because I can't stand bubble gum flavoured stuff. Blueberry? Blue? Just accept blue? it blue? as blue. it's blue I, I unicorn we'll to, rainbow I think we'll beautifulness. All right. uh, I suppose what I'm getting at is that um, sometimes we're consciously aware of what we're valuing and uh, a lot of the time we're not consciously aware and our values are kind of they're bubbling without us without us noticing it and influencing the things that we like. Uh, Paul and FBO had an answer to this as well. What does my pen say about me? This is from Paul. Somewhat utilitarian, who values craftsmanship and tradition with an emphasis on items which have utility and which lasts. So we know Paul. Um, mm. Not we wouldn't say very well, but we've met him a few times in person, and we know that he he really loves uh, leather work and wine and wine. Oh. 
a big fan of wine. Big fan of really knows yeah. his wines. Yeah, yeah. And um, he he takes really good care of what he owns. So I I completely see this. It really fits into how he line. presents himself. Yeah. Well, this this is a pretty drastic question. This next one, but uh, it's it's there. And uh, the question I think is, you kind of had to ask this at the end, yeah. don't you? How would you feel if all of your fountain pens were lost in a fire? Would you want to find exact replacements for your favorite pens, or would you start over afresh? So here's a clip from Jagen and also Alastair. My name's Jagen. I'm from Perth, and I'm going to talk about how I would feel if all my fountain pens were lost in a fire, and would I want to find the exact replacements for my favourite pens, or would I start over afresh? Now, because um, I'm in from Perth and I'm in Melbourne, it's exactly what I'm worried about right now. It's, it's the home is kind of empty, and I'm not telling you the address. <laughs> it is a worry. It's a worry. What I do, I, I worry about the fire. I don't want it to happen, and. I don't think it will, but we'll see when I get back home. <laughs> As for what I do, I'm mostly going to talk about my inks, because most of my expensive pens are actually with me right now, but with my inks, I would definitely start again afresh. I wouldn't try and replace what I've currently got, because I've, I've learned a lot, and that's what I've been doing with my inks, is every time I buy new ink, I'm learning more about what I like and what I, and what I don't like about inks. And I would honestly get fewer die mines even though I love die mines but I'd really focus on sailor early on get fewer much fewer noodlers and I'd just channel my collection really in on sailor because that's just really the every characteristic of sailor inks is what I love and I'd start afresh and just focus on there and then the other inks would be like just limited editions and anything that stands out my name's Alistair, and I'm going to answer the question, how would I feel if I lost all my pins in a fire, and what would I do next? Well, I suppose I'd feel pretty bad, really. Um, to a certain degree, they're insured, so the some of the money I would get back, and that's not such a problem, but some of my pens are mementos. They're actually the souvenirs that I got from particular trips or visits. Some of them have sentimental value because... For instance, one was a graduation present, and I've had that one for over 20 years. So those ones I couldn't replace. Even if I went out and bought an identical pen, it wouldn't have the same meaning because it wouldn't, it wouldn't have the same history. But what would I do to rebuild my collection? Well, I wouldn't actually rebuild the collection. There are a handful of pens that I would go out and rebuy, like the Customer Rushi. There are pens um, that just fit my hand so well they are so comfortable and uh, function so well in my life. Like the Pilot Custom 823 is just a perfect work pen. So what I would probably do is get the pens that I use every day and I would replace those. And then I think I'd be more selective about what other pens I would buy because a lot of the time you look at a pen, you try it out, you like it, you buy it, but then something else fits that niche a little bit better and so the pen moves on or it sits unused. So what I would do is not replace pens that I don't use regularly and then look for what gaps there are left in the collection. So if I replace my everyday work pens and my everyday delight pens, then I would see if there are any gaps left and maybe think about filling those gaps. But almost certainly it wouldn't be the exact same collection of pens that I started out with. All right, thank you, Jägen and Alistair. The, f the fire one is, it's an interesting, it's kind of just a time limit. 
and going... Um, so if you lost it all in one go? Would I want to find exact replacements? Um, how, about, how about you take this one, Sharon? Well, so I'm actually looking at Evelyn, who um, responded on Fountain Pens Oceania, and she said, uh, funny that you're talking about how I'd feel if we lost them in a fire. I'm kind of... I'm kind of trying to use that visual to decide whether buying certain fountain pens are an impulse buy or not. Um, is it one I'd want to save from a fire? And if this wasn't my pen, would I want to steal it? Um, that was a joke. Uh, for real, she needs to cut down on my impulse buys this year. There are plenty of nice releases, but some of them um, she's had to adjust the nib to her liking and is something that would be difficult to replace. At the end of the day, Evelyn said that uh, she'd prefer to start afresh if she ever lost them in a fire or a natural disaster. Um, so this is a reverse KonMari. Is it reverse KonMari or it's it's no it's not does it spark joy but would I care if it burns? Yeah, yeah. It's also would you feel that is this a void that would need to be filled? Yeah. By that specific item. Yeah. And I am not sure when I lost my omas, um, <gasps> uh, Diana offered uh, that if I wanted to buy her vodka lemon off her, um, and I haven't taken her up on it. Um, because I feel like there's, it, it's almost like uh, there's a part of me that has done that and no longer uh, feels this uh, need to, or at least doesn't feel the need to in a way that would take that from you. Plus, you know, like, you know that if you want to use it for a period, you can just ask me to borrow it. Yeah. I mean, I mean, that, that's not, that's not factoring in, but, <laughs> but, but yeah, I mean, there's, there's a part that uh, says I have done this and I can now experience other things been there done that what's next yeah yeah not that it wasn't good or not that it isn't something that i want to replicate but i now have space for other ideas exactly. yeah and i think if i had lost everything in a fire i definitely wouldn't go out and replace everything um i probably wouldn't even buy another fountain pen shockingly enough it'd be a tragic a tragic experience for you it would be um such a memorable experience, such a journey um, that it would be catharsis. completely irreplaceable. <laughs> it feels like the natural end of your Correct. career. Yeah, and yeah. I would sit back, reassess and think, do I still want to continue on this fountain pen thing or should I dedicate my time, resources and, you know, storage space to something else? Yeah. How, how hot is the fire? <laughs> no, I, celluloid will burn I, 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 very easily because because um we've had this talk about like uh you know the object having um intrinsic uh ha having meaning that carries through say very specific fire for your um so so all of your pen your plastic pens melt down into this single glob would you take that pen would you take that glob of plastic remodel it into another pen well, Is that well, you're, well I'm, I, you're, you're headed down the right direction say after this fire you find in the back of one of your shelves there is a muddled mass of <laughs> gold uh that is all uh pulled and you now have an indistinguishable uh, amount of gold that can be reworked into something would you do something with that so funny you should mention that. <laughs> I actually have a small container of gold nibs, yeah. um, of broken down gold nibs, <laughs> of broken down gold nibs. I didn't know this. From, uh, oh, okay. <laughs> anyway, um, 
I I was stashing away gold nibs from ages ago. I was buying these. I was buying pens in bulk, and so majority of them didn't work. And what I was doing was taking apart the gold nibs because, um, you know, like my mother said, gold's always worth something. <laughs> um, who cared about the rest of the pen bodies because they were everything from modern to like ridiculously unrepairable. But um, I kept a stash of these gold nibs and I didn't even realise it until I moved that I still had this stash of gold nibs. I've got a decent chunk there. Um, And I felt no desire whatsoever to do anything with those gold nibs. None whatsoever. The, uh, The closest I've come to doing anything with those gold nibs is maybe handing them over to Tav for him to experiment with. And I did promise someone that I would give them one of the pelican nibs that was in my pile. Yeah, yeah. That's about it. <laughs> you should just sell them at the Sydney Pen Show. Oh, that's I, a lot of effort. I have a, <laughs> I have a counter to that. Um, I have a pendant that was given to me by my grandparents that was made out of their wedding rings, melted down. And I, st- I have no desire for the pendant itself because I don't like the design, but I've kept that because I intend to melt it down to make something else out of it at some point or to add it to something. And that's something that has sat with me for the past definitely a decade now, Um, probably more like 15, 16 years. And that isn't tied to my experience with the item. That's purely that it came from my grandparents. So touching back on our previous uh, mentions about history and uh, significance. And um, I'll finish up with this comment from Louise on FPO, which I think Um, echoes a lot of what we also believe. So Louise wrote, I dabbled with fountain pens and ink when I was a teenager. I've always been a pen and stationery addict. My oldest and most precious pen is a very ordinary Waterman expert that my grandparents gave me for my 21st. Broke my wrist at 40 and using a biro was painful as they needed too much pressure and tried a fountain pen again. It was much more pleasurable to write with. Got into the online community and acquiring pens over the last five, six years. I've made some great friends, which I've always found hard, being shy and introvert. Fountain pens mark me out as an individual. If I lost them in a fire, I'd replace my favourites and start a new fountain pen journey. Oh, that's nice. This seems to be a through line in that a lot of us are saying... It's the experience as much as the object itself. Yeah, yeah. And for me, that's definitely the case. So the pens remind me of experiences and if I lost them, um, I'd still have that experience or the memory of it. And maybe I would just get new pens rather than um, finding the exact same ones. And then, you know, there are some pens that I wouldn't mind if they actually fell into a fire because they've got... Those Conway Stewarts that I have, which don't work. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it'd be a real load. Your time capsule Visconti. My time capsule. Actually, I wasn't even thinking about that. So um, I have a, my oldest, I think oldest now, um, my oldest Nakaya is a Nakaya desk pen in Kurotame finish that's got your name on it you can't get rid of that it has my name on it but um i have love-hate relationship with it i really love the pen it's got my name on it and i also like how it shows how the lacquer fades and changes over time because i've had it for over 10 years now but at the time i bought this particular desk pen i special ordered it and i ordered another one i ordered an akatamanuri and I ordered it for someone who is no longer a friend of mine. And every time I look at my desk pen, I think about the fact that I waited, what, nine months for this pen and another pen for someone who I won't even yeah, yeah. walk across the street. Like if they were, yeah. if they were 
on the other side of a street, I would walk in the opposite direction. Yeah. And so, yeah, whenever I look at my my desk pen with my name on it, um, and it writes, it writes very, very well, I am just really torn. And so I never use it for very long. I keep it inked up almost all the time, but I just... Her can't. bad juju is now attached to it. Yeah, well, I'm trying to... I'm trying to give it new memories, which is why I tr- always try and have it inked up. But um, I don't know. I haven't been able to break it. And every I haven't been able to break the cycle of bad juju. And every single time I see this person on any type of social media and stuff, I try, I give that pen a crack again every single time. So if that fell into a fire, I probably wouldn't cry all that much. So I think because we, our listeners, are fountain pen lovers, the people who reply to this these questions are also fountain pen lovers. We are fountain pen lovers. So I don't think any of us would look askance at the question of whether or not fountain pens mean something special to us. But if we had to explain this to, you know, someone in our family or a friend who doesn't understand it, um, what would you say? What, that I'm attached to material objects? Yeah, Yeah, they they all know that about me. (laughs) I have this conversation a lot, actually, and it now no longer phases me. I have this conversation at work because a while ago we were talking about doing uh, tax podcasts at work and somehow my name came up as one of the people to consult with because I already uh, assist on a podcast. And since then I've had a lot of conversations around, well, why fountain pens? Hmm. My response is, why not? You collect bags. Yeah. You, you can, with virtually any person, you can point to their their items of emotional attachment. I, um, and Diana knows this story already, but uh, there is someone at my workplace who collects chairs. Chairs. Okay. Chairs. Sure. Has an apartment for chairs. Okay. Like a... a like the, mid-century chairs. Sure, sure. But chairs, an yeah, entire yeah. apartment for chairs. So... You know, in comparison, my fountain pens yeah, yeah, thing, it's totally normal. I mean, how do you store over 100 chairs? You buy an apartment for said yeah, chairs. Yeah, yeah. How do you store over 100 fountain pens? Yeah, you yeah. buy an apartment for <laughs> <laughs> with extra storage. So I put this in our show notes because it's, um, it's a tweet that I ran across yesterday. And I think it sums up a lot of what we were saying. And it's from at Sarah Tabor underscore BWW. Um, And it goes, Marie Kondo says, sometimes messes happen because we have a lot of emotions invested in objects. Let's talk about that. People say, nah, that's crazy. People also say, now let's publicly mourn a space robot. And to put this in context, (laughs) (laughs) um, this tweet was from the 17th of February. And that was when uh, NASA finally said goodbye to the Opportunity rover on Mars Mm -hmm. after about six months of of silence. Even like even the most anti-materialist people would balk at destroying, say, um, a Jimi Hendrix guitar because they know that there's history. Well, you'd have to tell them that it's a Jimi Hendrix guitar. But that's what would stop them, <laughs> right? And there's um, emotions and history and significance there that isn't necessarily monetary and that, that you've placed there that other people have, have necessarily. Isn't a part of it so... Um, if you are someone who studies the psychology of objects and things like that, they would say it's all because it's part of a story, right? Um, you value that object that belonged to Jimi Hendrix because you can, and this goes back to how we value history as well. You can, you can 
identify a through line, a narrative from, you know, when the object was created to when it was possessed by a certain amount of people and then who had it after that. So it has continuity like something that is alive. And we value that because I guess we we see how it's like us, you know, we are alive and we have a history and we don't like to be forgotten, just like our things. We, yeah, we anthropomorphize them. Yeah. And by surrounding yourself with things that are rich in history, you hope to add on to your history or to enliven the history that you are going to create. Yeah. There's nothing yeah. wrong with that. Yeah. I, I really like the quote that you have in our notes that we didn't we didn't read out, um, but the one that's from Dr. Christian Jarrett in The Psychology of Stuff and Things. Um, As our lives unfold, our things embody our sense of selfhood and identity still further, becoming external receptacles for our memories, relationships, and travels. My house is not just a thing, wrote Karen Lollar in 2010. The house is not merely a possession or a structure of unfeeling walls. It is an extension of my physical body and my sense of self that reflects who I was, am, and want to be. That's really great. I really like that. And I think that putting it into the sense of a house helps identify for people that anyone that's lived anywhere where you didn't feel at home. And that's what building a collection of things that you care about is about. It's about building... A home. And that's why curation is important because you don't want things that are toxic yeah. to be in your home. Uh, well, if you have any thoughts on this particular topic, feel free to write to I'd us. I'd love to hear from you. Yeah. Uh, um, but that takes us to our recommendation section. Uh, and this is where our hosts recommend things we like that may or may not be pen related. Di, would you like to be first at the gate for this one? Sure thing. So recently I've actually been reading novels again after ages of where I just listened to podcasts and uh, listened to audiobooks. Uh, recently, I started reading I started reading Wild Seed by Octavia E. Butler, who is a classic American sci-fi writer who's, I think, won multiple awards. She's a, a very, very well-celebrated science fiction writer from the 80s. And Wild Seed is – imagine – a alternate, like an X-Men verse, you know, where there are mutants in the world and they have different worldviews like Dr. X and um, what's what's his nemesis name? Uh, Professor and X and Professor Magneto. Professor X and Magneto. I yeah. knew you'd be the expert. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> Emphasis on X. X. So, uh, you know, they have one believes in being responsible and um, being helping humanity and the other one is more rapacious and um, is, has no feels no obligation to be a steward, I guess, of humanity. And um, so Wild Seed is about these two immortals. Um, one of them is uh, many thousands of years old. Um, he was born in ancient Egypt and he's a body snatcher. So he jumps from body to body. Um, so his power is inherently, um, it invasive. takes invasive. Yeah, yeah. Yes. So he steals the life force of um, the person that he uses. His nemesis, I guess, or his partner is a woman called Anyanwu. She's from the African continent as well. And she is about 300 years old. And her ability is to shapeshift into other people, into animals. She can change her age, her appearance, and she's very strong. And she uses her abilities to look after her children, her kinsmen, as well as to protect herself, of course. 
and it's about their struggle of power over um, multiple centuries and they get involved in the slave trade they get taken to louisiana um and it's like this underground history of the world yeah, yeah. Um, i think it make a great movie if they ever decide to film it. Um, I think it deals with really great themes and the writing is just wonderful. And I can understand why people rave on and on about Octavia E. Butler. So give that a go. That's great. Um, I'm going to recommend another podcast um, that I've been listening to and it jumps in. It's, it's a good podcast rec for, I think this episode where we're talking about stories and through lines um, with history. Well, what it is, is it's a podcast about myths and beliefs of different cultures. And it is run by two, uh, two women from New York. I believe they went to NYU together. And it is called Spirits, uh, where they on air drink and talk about Yeah, it's a very, uh, I think they, they get a lot better. Um, I've listened to some of the early stuff and it's sort of uh, less structurally defined uh, veers in, in ways that I'm sure we did and uh, still do. But um, later on, there's some really great stuff. Uh, I particularly like one of their episodes about the Fei and Izanami and Izanagi, which is the Japanese uh, creation myth. So it's about mythologies? Yeah, it's about sort of different cultural beliefs. So some, there's one episode recently where they've talked about uh, Brazilian creatures. So specifically creatures in Brazilian belief. But there'll be some episodes where they just talk about shark folklore across, <laughs> across eight or ten different cultures. Or uh, horses in folklore across 20 odd different cultures. And I think it's really good to see the through lines uh, between history and between different cultures. Did they mention um, how Loki turned into a horse and got pregnant? I haven't, I haven't done the horse one, but that's that. Uh, <laughs> I, I'll, I'll listen now. I love now. that part of it. I'll listen now. Um, <laughs> but they, they, and because they're, they appear to be students of history as well, they talk a lot about how, uh, particularly with this Brazilian one, as an example, the, Myths, you can sort of tell when they've been anglicized or when they've been Catholicized, when they've been changed by a colonial power that has kept the myth intact, but things have been added to it to make it fit. And I think that's really interesting. So my recommendation is Spirits, which is a podcast on um, Stitcher. I know it's on Stitcher Premium. I don't know where else. Cool. Uh, Sharon. Um my rec is a game, actually. Um, so, like most people, uh, I have played Cards Against Humanity. Really quite liked it. And I pretty much suck at it. I didn't do very well the last time we uh, had a session at uh, Mark's place. Um, I'm pretty sure I came last in that. This was back when he lived in Balmain. Yeah. Ages yeah, ago. Yeah. That was ages ago. But I think that's the last time we had a proper good session of Cards Against Humanity. Um there is now Cards Against Muggles, the Harry Potter version. <laughs> and I have had my eye on this ever since I saw it on Facebook. It came up on my Facebook feed randomly about a year ago and it's been sold out for forever and a day. But I finally have my grubby little paws on a copy of Cards Against Muggles. I haven't uh, had a chance to play with it yet. But pretty hilarious. So originally I bought this as a gift for my Potterhead of a boss, but I've subsequently opened that package for myself. You having second thoughts about moving it on? Uh, no, no, no. I just bought a backup. Oh, sure, sure, <laughs> You'll sure. get the backup. 
So cards against muggles. This reminds me of a tweet I saw recently where it's just someone saying uh, Ron's dad fetishizes muggle culture. <laughs> um, which is which is quite good. <laughs> oh, uh, so I just uh, subscribed to Spirits podcast on Pocket Cast, and there are some there is over a hundred episodes. It's really cool. It's like um, a folklore or mythology, like taking a course. So there are episodes on a uh, Nancy, the Ranger, on werewolves, on um, divination, on mermaids. There's so much stuff. Yeah, okay. they're like, and they usually run half an hour to forty-five minute episodes, so they're good kind of bite-sized chunks. Really cool of podcast. Awesome. I'm a big fan. Okay, uh, well, that takes us to the end of the episode. Uh, thank you, everyone. A reminder that if you are interested in uh, either those inks or the pens mentioned earlier in our giveaway to get involved, tell your friends about it. Remember that you need to follow the pod as well as tag the pod instructions. Are... And you know what? Just just follow us on Instagram anyway. We're anyway. at yeah. the nib section. Sure. Uh, well, thank you uh, for lending us your place again, Sharon. Thank you. Uh, thank you for joining us again, Di, and uh, organizing uh, once again. No problem. Uh, and as always, uh, I'm Chucks Montano. Until next time, listeners, ink well. Past and future episodes of this podcast can be found at thenibsection.com and wherever you listen to podcasts. Hop onto iTunes to rate us, review us, and recommend us to your friends. Want to share your thoughts, suggestions, or feedback? We'd love to hear from you. Email us at thenibsection at gmail.com. You can also comment at us on the Nib Section Facebook page or at the Nib Section on Twitter and Instagram. The Nib Section is the official podcast of Fountain Pens Oceania. Our producers this episode were Chucks Montano, Sharon Zah, Diana Dye, and Alistair Dawes. Recording and editing was done by Diana Dye and Alistair Dawes. Special thanks to Leanne, Kaz, Adam, Nicholas, Halheim, Kevin, Leone, Paul, Hannah, Yegan, Evelyn, and Louise. Our music was composed by Michael Pierce. Our logo was designed by Will H. Smith with artwork by Melissa Graff. Thanks for listening. <laughs>